Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'd like to wish you all an especially happy goth Christmas. Tis the season to be spooky, this year more than ever, and though we may not be able to trick or treat, we can gather around the fire for some good, honest, horrifying fun. My guest for this Halloween special is none other than Colin Dickey, explorer of the unexplained, chronicler of the kooky, an all-round go-to guy for real-world things that make you go, hmm, ah, or Christ, what was that? In 2016, Colin published the acclaimed Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places. So I think if Bill Bryson had a twisted love child with Edgar Allan Poe, and, and that's what the book delivered, it's a travelogue and history of the spookiest places in American history and lore. Well, this year he's back with The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. It's a whistle-stop romp around the mad corridors of fringe science and conspiracy theory, making it an incredibly timely book for a year in which our political leaders have dispensed with scientific advice, and when a worrying number of people think 5G is to blame for a global pandemic. (sighs) But anyway, in a year that has been so terrifyingly real, and I'm saying that with massive quotation marks, it seems a good idea to celebrate Halloween with some stories that suggest there may still be romance and mystery at the edges of the world. So, let's head to Roswell, New Mexico, or Mount Shasta, California, or the wilds of the American forest, where something may have just nipped behind that tree. Let's talk scared. Hi, Colin. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, thanks for having me on. No, it's great. Uh, how are you and where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I am doing well. I'm coming to you from Brooklyn. It's a, it's a nice overcast October day here. Excellent. It's a dark, wintry autumnal day here, um, evening here rather, but uh, I'm glad you're getting some nice weather. You are very much a kind of scholar of the weird and the uncanny, and you've got a lot of interesting theories on why we like to believe in creepy things. Um, Halloween seems a perfect time to pick your brains. Your most recent book is The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. So that's a lot to chew on in one title. Um, what can you tell us about the book as a starting point? Yeah, no, you're right. It is kind of a, a mouthful, but I, I think it. Um, I end up sort of focusing on three different uh, areas that kind of dominate the book those being the the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria, uh, cryptids, you know, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, the Jersey Devil, things like that, and then UFOs and aliens. And I think I found that there were all of these weird overlaps between those three topics, and I, I, I couldn't figure out a way to talk about one without talking about the other two. And, and so they they kind of all fed into each other at some point and kind of became a kind of overarching kind of grouping that that uh, determined the book. What gave you the idea for this book? Coming off the back of Ghostland, which was about, you know, the specifics of of haunting and history in America, what gave you gave you the idea for for this book? Right, yeah. So my last book was on on ghosts and sort of haunted spaces in America and sort of the ways in which um stories about hauntings could actually be sort of mined for, you know, kind of a maybe kind of repressed understanding of American history that doesn't get talked about in other ways. And after I finished that book, 
quite by accident. This was 2016. This was after the uh, the U.S. presidential election, and I was thinking about you know misinformation and conspiracy theories and you know um, sort of fringe beliefs. And um, sort of by accident, I discovered that uh, the the percentage of Americans who believe in Bigfoot is actually uh, way higher than I ever thought it was. I I kind of you know I I remember growing up as a kid in the you know in the 80s with you know Bigfoot and UFOs and stuff like that and thinking it was all really cool, but really thinking that that stuff had kind of died out in public consciousness, particularly after like the X-Files wrap, like that seems sort of the heyday of that stuff. And after the end of the X-Files, I kind of just assumed that people had, you know, moved on to some other weirdness. But, um, I, you know, when I looked it up in 2016, it was something like, um, I think at the time, 14% of Americans believe in, in Bigfoot, which that number has, has only gone up since then. And, and also that's a huge number. That's not, you know, you do the math, that's like, 40 million people or something like that. So I think, you know, at some point I was like, oh, okay, there's a, there is a, a real fascination with this thing, which has never been proven. And, and it seems to be that the, the whole point of the fascination is that it, it can't be proven or, or, or something like that. And I think that kind of, kind of led me down this road to sort of trying to understand, you know, um, where those beliefs come from, because they seem so different to me than, than like, you know, say belief in ghosts. So why is that? Well, one of the things I thought I think was sort of interesting is that like, um, you know, belief in ghosts really transcends time and place. Like as long as there's been human culture, there have been ghost stories. You know, I mean, you can go back to, um, you know, ancient Greek and uh, Greece and Rome. You can go back to, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. You can, you can, you know, anywhere in, in the history of, you know, China or, you know, Arabia or India or Africa or Europe. Or you know, um, you know, Native American cultures. There's always been ghost stories. So, you know, it's just it's just a fundamental way of how we think about and process things like mortality and and history and remembrance and all these things. They they feed into you know ghost stories. Um, by contrast, you know, belief in in cryptids, you know, like the Loch Ness monster, that that only dates to like the 1930s, you know, um, at least in its current form, you know, and 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 that was a kind of interesting kind of road to go down because we we long have believed in sort of, you know, you know, monsters for lack of a better term, you know, dragons and, you know, other sort of strange stuff, you know, monkfish and, you know, basilisks and krakens and all that stuff. You know, that belief really sort of kind of came to an end in the 19th century and was replaced gradually by this this other belief, um, you know, in, in, in cryptids, which I, I, I came to sort of understand as being a kind of different way of thinking about the world and a way of different way of thinking about uh, our relationship to the natural world. And so... So it just seemed like a very different history. You know, one, one, you know, the history of ghosts is, is a sort of universal facet of human expression, whereas um, the, the stuff that I ended up looking and looking at in this book, uh, Atlantis and Lemuria, cryptids and, and UFOs, all seem to be um, specific responses to like the modern age, you know, the, the second half of the 19th century onward. And you make that case quite compellingly. And you you argue that, and I, I would say almost the, the central thesis of your your book is that you think these be- beliefs are a way of compensating for a kind of lack of romance or a disenchanting of the world, and I agree with you. I think that's palpably the reason we believe in these things, or, or that we you know we pursue these the, these ideas. Do you see that as a bad thing, though, 
or as a wholly bad thing to compensate for that disenchantment? No, I don't think it's, I don't think the 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 impulse that drives somebody towards something like you know a belief in the Loch Ness monster. I don't know that doesn't strike me as inherently bad in and of itself. And I think that what I found, you know, I, again, I, when I started this book originally, I was going to pair, you know, uh, these kind of beliefs with, you know, other kind of more wild conspiracy theories, uh, you know, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion and other stuff. And I, you know, it quickly became a kind of overwhelming task. And I, I paired it back to, you know, the topics that I focused on the book. But the, the other reason I, I wanted to focus on these topics is because I wanted to preserve that that sort of joy and sense of wonder that, you know, you're, you're not going to get with these kind of darker, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, the anti-Semitic ones and other things like that, you know? So like, I, I wanted to kind of make a space for that desire for, you know, magic and, um, you know, kind of something beyond the modern world. And I, you know, and so, you know, when I was, when I was researching this, when I was writing this book, I really wanted to continue to kind of keep, not only an open mind about this stuff, but also sort of like an openness to the excitement and the kind of uh, sense of mystery that that these topics um, evoke for people. You know, I mean, all that being said, though, I think that there are some kind of kind of warning signs and, and you know, kind of things to be aware of. And, you know, um, one of the people I talk about in the book is um, this uh, uh, professor in Virginia who uh, was one of the leading Loch Ness monster believers. You know, he was very pro Loch Ness monster. He wrote a book on on Loch Ness, basically arguing for um, you know the creature's existence, and all all that seems fine. But he he subsequently later on in life became a, a pretty vocal um, AIDS denialist. Uh, you know, denying that uh, there was a link link between HIV and AIDS, and basically casting a lot of doubt on on settled science, and became something of a of a of a quack, and because he had a university pedigree, he, a slightly dangerous one, because he could sort of get himself taken seriously. And so, so you know, it's hard not to look at his early days as a as a as a Nessie believer and see the seeds of a kind of anti science rejection of um, you know accepted fact in in what he was doing. But that's that's not to say that everybody who you know, hopes to see a, you know, a weird, you know, a, a Bigfoot when they go camping are necessarily like going down that road. It just, it just seemed like a cautionary tale to kind of be aware of that, that the the belief in itself is often quite harmless, but it, it can shade into sort of other modes of thought, which maybe are a little bit more dicey. I feel like it is quite a, a tight rope to walk with this stuff. I mean, I'm going to quote something from early on in the book where you, you, you write that, Quote, our need to believe in monsters in the mar- at the margin has contributed through the decades to a rising sentiment of distrust in science, in academic institutions and in the government. Do you see a direct link between belief in these things and a, you know, a distrust of those, let's call it rational institutions? Um, I, again, I don't see a direct link. I see, I see a really interesting tension and a tension that seems to modulate sort of based on on the individual and the, and the time and so you see these um these groups you know again i think like you know cryptozoology is a really interesting point of fact you know i mean um you have people who who see cryptozoology as very compatible with science so i, I went to uh, the uh, International Cryptozoology Convention in 2018. You know, it's, it's hosted by Lauren Coleman, who um, runs the International Cryptozoology Mu- Museum in Portland, Maine. 
And, you know, his, his logo for the museum is, is the coelacanth, which is, um, you know, as you, you probably know, you know, a fish that was long believed to be extinct until it turned up living in the 1930s in South Africa and, and you know, since been confirmed. And the logo for that year was the, uh, for the convention was, was the panda bear. Again, another animal that was thought by people in the West to be, you know, mythical or fantastical, but turned out to be an actual real animal. And so, you know, Lauren's whole, whole thing is that, you know, this is a kind of pursuit that can work hand in hand with science. And in fact, one of the uh, presenters at the convention was a primatologist from uh, Columbia, I think, either Columbia or NYU, but I think he was from Columbia you know, talking about, you know, discovering new great apes in Africa and, you know, that, that process. So, you know, so there, there's definitely a lot of people for whom this is just another kind of version of, of science. And, you know, the, when the original, you know, uh, name cryptozoology was formed, you know, it was, it was a, a sort of riff on, on paleontology. And it was basically like, if paleontology can be the study of, animals that no longer exist. Um, cryptozoology can be the study of animals that whose existence has yet to be proven. So you think there can be some compatibility there then between science and, and, and those kind of beliefs in principle? Yeah, as I said, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. And I, I think that there, there are certain amount of tensions, you know, um, you know, the primatologist who was there, you know, he basically at one point sort of exasperatedly, he's sort of, you know, like, stop sending me fur and footprints, you know, the, the, the kind of <laughs> The, uh, what, what passes for, uh, evidence in, uh, the world of cryptid hunters is, is radically different than what passes for evidence in, in mainstream science. He's like, you know, I'm not analyzing any more dog fur that you people is, are telling me is actually Bigfoot. And I'm not analyzing any more footprints. You need to get me a stable in focus video of the animal in motion. <laughs> and, you know, and, and again, I mean, like, there's there's this thing about you know I think the real heyday of cryptozoology in some sense was was an age when um, the technology just wasn't good enough uh, to capture animals in the wild and so if somebody came back from you know a trip in in, in the northern California redwoods with uh, you know a blurry photograph or you know two seconds of super eight footage and and said look this is all I could get before the thing ran away I mean that was a lot more believable than, you know, a world where, you know, every single person has got a high def camera in their pocket in the, in the form of a, you know, a smartphone. And it's, you know, you can document anything you want. And so, you know, why we haven't gotten good, clear documentary evidence of these creatures in an age when every single person is, a you know, has the, the, the means to be a, a world-class uh, videographer. I think that's, that's something of a problem for this group, I think. My, my favourite theory for, <laughs> makes me laugh every time. My favourite theory for why why all photos of Bigfoot are blurry is that Bigfoot himself is blurry. <laughs> oh my god, I've never heard that before. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I spent some time with the um, the Hudson Valley Bigfoot researchers, and they they just kept showing me all these blown up photos of the tr of trees in in upstate new york and it was just one of these things where they kept saying you know can't you see the face and i was just like i mean if you look at a if you look at a like a pixelated you know forest picture you can see anything you want <laughs> but um you know that that was that was definitive they, they were also the ones who told me that you know we've never found a corpse of of a of a bigfoot because quote unquote they bury their dead which is another uh thing i'd never heard before and i thought was mm -hmm. um a sort of interesting way of uh, parsing the situation. I find the Bigfoot thing 
endlessly fascinating. Have you ever, have you read the new Max Brooks book? Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, uh, has written a book this year called um, Devolution, which is another similar kind of. No, I haven't. It's good yeah, it's very very good. It's kind of like a found footage not book um, about a Bigfoot attack on this community living near the Cascade Mountains. It's it's near Mount Rainier. Um, it's really good, oh, and oh. It, it contains quite a lot of quite a lot of cool anecdotal stuff from the history of Bigfoot research and the history of, you know, anecdote and case study. I would recommend it. Yeah, it's called Devolution. It's excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I'll check it out. It's funny that you mention um, Lauren Coleman because weird synchronicity for a, for a podcast which is normally about horror fiction. I was discussing Lauren Coleman on the last episode. Um, I was speaking to uh, an author called T. Kingfisher who writes in her most recent novel about quite a creepy museum. And I mentioned the Cryptozoology Museum in, in Portland, Maine. Um, as an example of that kooky local museum, I've actually been there. I just think it's a a wondrously kitsch place. Like the stuff that, like for example, all the stuff on on dinosaur sightings. Rather than any exhibits, they just have toys and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really do the science much, much good. I don't think that museum. It's a wonderful place to, to visit as a tourist, but it doesn't really make a compelling case for the existence of any of this stuff. Yeah, again, I mean, I think that, you know, the thing about Lauren, and I, I, I tried so many times to get, get him on the record to interview for this book, and he he kept blowing me off one way or another, and I, I really I really bummed that he never agreed to a, to an interview. So I, I, I would have loved to talk to him about this stuff because I think he is genuinely a very smart and engaging thinker about these things and, and is not necessarily, you know, the kind of kooky wacko that, you know, I think maybe he might, you know, somebody like that might have a reputation for, but, but you're right that that museum it, it's, yeah, it's like, it's, there are moments where you're like, am I in a museum or is this like a, a, a comic book store? Yeah. Just with all yeah. the, like the figurines and stuff like that. And I, I wish that, I don't know that he, he, you know, again, I mean, I think what he's trying to do there in that space is not only sort of advocate for these things, but also to sort of kind of talk about what belief is and what does it mean to believe a thing and what is, you know, what is an eyewitness sighting? And, you know, you, you kind of get glimpses, I think, of the better museum that 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 could be in there. I mean, I think I think it was it was at the uh, the uh, cryptozoology museum that I first came across this this idea, um, you know, that you know, the wild man mythology, which includes, you know, the Yeti and, and Bigfoot and Sasquatch also includes Santa Claus, you know, that Santa Claus is yet one more version of the <laughs> kind of hairy figure who is sort of outside of culture, kind of just on the edge of culture and sort of, you know, as such as sort of watching us like there's, you know, there's that, that sort of is mentioned in one of his displays. And I think, you know, that's, that's a really fascinating way to sort of look at it. So yeah, I think I think the museum could have been a lot better if he had taken these questions that he's raising a little bit more seriously. That is a fascinating idea. Never considered that myself. So you you are split into three sections. So you've got the lost civilization section of the book, cryptozoology, and the whole alien conspiracy stuff. The way you basically break it down, it, it works as quite a nice chrono- chronology as well because you've got the lost civilizations kind of being a nineteenth century scam essentially coming into <laughs> cryptos which dominate the f- the middle half of the 20th century and then aliens taking over from the second half of the 20th century through to now and it, it does feel when you read the book the cryptozoology stuff is almost the most innocent or benign for manifestation of this stuff 
and that it's bookended by these two quite sinister, manipulative kind of systems of thought. Can you elaborate on those other things you talk about as well? I do think that in many ways, the the cryptozoology stuff is probably, yeah, it's, it's probably the most harmless. I think in some ways, the lost continent stuff is probably harmless-ish, although it, it carries a fair amount of like weird baggage, particularly when you sort of get into this, you know, what's known as diffusionism, this idea that, you know, non-European cultures are sort of not capable of, of culture and civilization without, you know, help from, you know, the Atlanteans or something like that. But, and as I, as I said before, it's sort of like, I couldn't get at one of these things without, without getting at all three, because uh, for example, um, you know, I, I went to Mount Shasta and, and Mount Shasta is sort of seen by some uh, to be the, the, the home of the last remnant of the Lemurians who supposedly live in an underground city beneath the mountain uh, called Telos. And the, the various records you see of, of Lemurians include, you know, that they're, they're tall, hairy, ape-like beasts, or that they fly around on these little uh, silver discs that they can control with their minds. And so, like, so like right from the beginning, you see the kind of syncretism of the way these, these three ideas and beliefs overlap, which I, I found really fascinating. And, and at the same time, you see all the various ways in which they, they, they differ. And the weird thing about UFOs, um, which in some sense come out of the same kind of tradition as, you know, cryptids or whatever, but after the, after the first kind of post-war modern sighting over Mount Rainier, Washington uh, by Kenneth Arnold, you know, where he, he thinks that, you know, these things could be, uh, you know, they could be Soviet, they could be Chinese, they could be, you know, a threat of some kind. The, the Air Force, the United States Air Force in, in America takes over the, the kind of um, the job of investigating and documenting um, UFO sightings because, because of a concern that there might be a national security threat. And so, and that's, you know, that, that, that's true of other nations as well. It's just America was the one I mostly looked at. So, Already, um, there's a difference because, you know, with cryptids, it's usually just amateurs. It's usually just, you know, you go out with your buddies to Loch Ness with some cameras and you hope to see something. Or, you know, you go out on a, on a camping trip with, a, you know, some motion detectors and you set them up and, you know, you hope to see something. And that's very different from the, the, the Air Force showing up at your, your house, you know, asking you what you saw and documenting the, the position from which you saw it and, you know, correlating that with was Venus in the sky at that point, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of like the the UFO story immediately becomes one that is kind of ripe for a kind of government paranoia simply because the way it was um, investigated and, and the way in which the sort of uh, the narrative trajectory of it began to unfold. Sure. And, and that's where my real interest in the book for the base of this podcast kind of kicks in because... The Lost Continent stuff is is kind of boys on adventure stuff. There is, you know, there's there's a strange kind of racial chauvinism that that comes along with that, um, which isn't isn't great, obviously. But it's largely innocent. Cryptozoology we've discussed feels like a fairly benign, amateurish pastime. And then you get this alien stuff and this conspiracy stuff, which is so pertinent today. And it feels like that's where the tone, both of the phenomena and of your book, changes. With the alien stuff, like, why is it so much darker, do you think? Why is it so much more sinister in the way it is, you know, reported, thought about, 
talked about than than the stuff that comes before it. Yeah, you know, partly as I mentioned, it has a lot to do with the fact that who of who's doing the investigating and the way in which you know the the military and governments get involved so quickly. Um, and again, I mean, this is what I really wanted to kind of figure out with this book is I, I wanted to sort of you know again in 2016 there was so much paranoia and confusion and sort of distrust going around and I really wanted to try and understand a little bit better of the kind of genealogy of how we got to where we were. And, and by looking at these things, I, I wanted to kind of understand how we went from something benign like Loch Ness to, um, you know, this idea that uh, the government is uh, lying to us about the existence of aliens and, and the aliens are flitting about at night, abducting humans and exsanguinating cattle and, you know, all this stuff. And, and, and it seemed like this innate government, this innate distrust of government, this idea that 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 government knows more about UFOs than they're letting us know, meant that in times of general anxiety and paranoia, this narrative would would resurface in ways that would really um, kind of resonate with people. So, like, there's there's the whole thing about the the mutes, the cattle mutilation, right? You know, which um, begins. In the early seventies, I, th- I well the the first the first example is actually a horse in like nineteen sixty eight. But in in the early seventies, it's when it really starts to sort of take off. And and again, before I, I was before I started researching this book, I like I think most people assumed that the story of the cattle mutilations always had to do with with aliens. But this is in fact not true. That the the original sort of panic around cattle mutilations happened in the early seventies when the 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 Nixon administration was. Uh, uh, intervening with a heavy hand in a, into cattle prices and causing enormous instability in in the industry, and you know, and particularly smaller ranchers became uh, sort of economically vulnerable by the the kind of uh, haphazard and random ways in which in which the uh, uh, Nixon administration was sort of screwing up the whole industry, and so these cattle mutilations suddenly became proof of of government malfeasance and and so the 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 initial panic was around uh not aliens but but black helicopters who were supposedly you know some sort of secret government agency that was going around uh exsanguinating cattle and leaving their sort of eviscerated corpses everywhere and so and as that sort of died down it, it kind of got reborn in the late 70s um as a function of of aliens right and it becomes this kind of deeply paranoid story that kind of has a, a lot of the hallmarks of, um, I think, sort of a kind of clinical schizophrenia almost. You know, it's almost like the, the community developed a kind of schizophrenia. But it's like there is this there's this way in which anxiety about the government becomes acute. And then this this old story about the government hiding aliens becomes a means of kind of working through that that anxiety. That's a long answer. I don't know if that made sense. It did make made a lot of sense, but you use the word wonder a lot um, in this book, you know, like the search for wonder, the search for enchantment. And it, and it feels like, you know, it, it tipped from wonder to fear because the, the idea of aliens or, or other worlds or, you know, things like that are wondrous. You know, they, they are sublime as you, you often refer to them as, you know, sublime, be, sublime is very, very close to like Gothic and horror fiction. Cause it's about, you know, things being awe-inspiring but at a distance so they are it's containable terror that you can deal with and and almost enjoy so i I get that when i think about you know a spaceship whizzing around but when you boil it down to as you say the clinical nature of 
you know, bureaucrats and, and filing cabinets and this kind of quite mundane but scary conspiracy, that seems a very, very different phenomenon from everything that's come before it. Is it a particularly American neurosis? Oh, geez, I don't know. You, you tell me. I mean, I, you know, I, I, because these things are, are so culturally specific, I think I've, I've tried very hard not to make uh, too many sweeping generalizations beyond America. And it's not because I think that America is special or noteworthy or that, you know, the Americans are even more or less uh, susceptible to this kind of stuff. I just, I just didn't feel confident kind of weighing in on, on cultures that I didn't feel like I knew sort of intimately well to, to sort of, to offer an answer that for that. So yeah, so it's, it's, it is, it is an interesting, I mean, yeah, I mean, Americans have a, have a, I I wouldn't say unique, but they have a particular relationship to their own government, you know, sort of nominally a democracy, but one in which everybody kind of accepts the fact that the government is not always working. And in fact, is rarely working in the best interests of like individual civilians. Like, you know, one of the the stories, I don't think I put this in the book, but it, it certainly was in the back of my mind during a lot of this is the, uh, the story of the green run. Uh, which I don't know if you know anything about. No, I don't. So uh, Hanford, Washington was where the, the first plutonium processing site for the Manhattan Project was. And so, you know, this community kind of grew up around these reactors that produced uh, weapons-grade plutonium. And in 1949, the government had this idea of, like, we should know better how to track radioactive fallout in the air. So what if we intentionally release a cloud of a plume of radioactive, you know, uh, gas or, you know, whatever into the air above the town of Hanford, Washington, so we can study it. And, uh, and again, this, this happened, this has been declassified. This is not like a conspiracy theory. And, and of course, as these things go, they, they misjudge the wind patterns, the, 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 uh, I think that I think maybe the plan was to have it go over unoccupied um, land, but the wind shifted and it, it blew back over, you know, inhabited land. And this is horrible travesty and just uh, shows a real cavalier disregard for Americans' lives, even at the time that it is ostensibly to protect the country um, from, you know, a future sort of, you know, nuclear catastrophe of some kind. So it's just like, you know, so so Americans kind of we all kind of understand this idea that the government will the government is out to protect America as a kind of concept and, a, and an idea, but is not doesn't actually care too much if individual Americans uh, are sacrificed for that greater good. You know, again, I mean, I think I wouldn't want to say about about other cultures, but I do think that. In the case of the United States, there is a, a kind of baked in understanding that's born of sort of mutual trust or mutual distrust and uh, low grade hostility between the government and its people. I suppose the, the bigger question is like how, we, how that comes into play today. If, as your book lays out, this kind of conspiratorial thought, you know, is a way of it, it, it has a damaging impact on people's respect for science and government and academia and all that sort of stuff. What do we do then when those institutions start to trade themselves in anti-scientific or conspiratorial thoughts? I'm thinking about things like Trump and his ridiculous stance on COVID. Or over here, we had a a, a politician called Michael Gove, 
say the most ridiculous thing uh, during the whole Brexit debacle in which he said, I think the the people of England or the UK rather are sick of experts. Right. It's like the most it's the most stupid thing I've ever heard a politician say, you know, we're sick of experts or what? But it feels yeah, it feels like that way of thinking has now become almost a tool of the authorities rather than something which is destabilizing the authorities. Robert Smithson has this, the, the, uh, the artist has this line that I, I think of uh, where he talks about entropy and he, he says, you know, imagine a sandbox where half of the sandbox is, is white sand and half of it is black sand. And then tell a kid to get in the sandbox and run in circles clockwise for five minutes. And then after those five minutes are up, tell that same kid to run counterclockwise in circles for five minutes. You're not going to end up with the black sand back on its side and the white sand back on its side. You're just, you know, like, you know, in other words, it's sort of once these things start, it's really hard to undo them because you can't just go back the other way without, you know, running the risk of just, you know, polarizing it. And again, I mean, that I think is, is what seems to be happening where, when you know one one side of the aisle sort of advocates for you know an abandonment of, of scientific expertise and the other the other side responds by saying no you know science is science is good we like science we should listen to science the the media more often than not sort of treats it as a he said she said thing where you know it just sort of exacerbates the and compounds the problem further so yeah it's it's a real difficult one and i don't think there are good and easy answers i mean for me thinking about thinking about the book like one of the things that i found is kind of kind of useful or kind of revelatory to think about was that in the in in my lifetime it feels like there was a series of real shocks to the idea that you could trust the experts right you know i mean there were things like the challenger disaster when the the space shuttle blew up there were there were things like the the uh, the revelations that the tobacco companies knew all along that they were giving people cancer and were just sort of hiding it up. You know, there was this sense, you know, there were the you know like the kind of Aaron Brockovich things where like you know the the some somebody would be polluting the groundwater and giving everybody cancer and then you know the government would kind of look the other way. So on the one hand, it was sort of like we are we are at a moment you know where where you should be you know kind of have a healthy distrust I think of a certain kind of authority figure because because we unfortunately have a you know a track record of those authority figures being you know uh you know lying to us but then but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't vaccinate your kids you know i mean there there are other things that we actually know quite well and we, we you know it's not a it's not something up for debate you know i mean we know right now exactly how to deal with covid and it it it, it involves you know, masks and social distancing and, um, you know, low density and staying outside. And like, it's, it's not at this point rocket science. And so the, the real nut is how do you maintain that healthy skepticism towards authority without actually chipping away at, at uh, sort of mutually agreed upon truths that actually are, are valuable and, and vital to our world? You bring us to, to COVID. So I should jump in, by the way, and say uh, to the listeners that someone is setting off fireworks outside. So if you hear like, a, a weird bang in the background, I apologize for that. Um, yeah, but you bring us to COVID and Trump. And there's no way to really talk about a book that dwells on conspiracy and scientific or anti-scientific thought without touching on those subjects. I won't go too deep. All I want to ask is, obviously, you've been writing this for a while. Were you tempted to go back and edit it or 
add anything in there because of of recent events oh i don't know i mean yeah it took me a long time to write i mean i you know i started it right after the 2016 election so i was very much thinking about um about Trump and um, the kind of rise of conspiracy theories. Although, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of wanted to step a little bit away from it. Part of the reason is I knew that anything that I wrote, and I, you know, I think this turned out to be true, anything that I wrote in 2018 about conspiracy about contemporary conspiracy theories would be, you know, completely outdated by the time that you know the book came out. I mean, I, I there was. You know, the book came out in, in July of 2020. There's no way I could have added a little bit about, you know, COVID before it went to press in, in any kind of meaningful way. And so in the sense of like, you know, book production schedules, I think it was kind of important to just kind of worry more about the history and what brought us to this moment than trying to uh, stay abreast of, of what's happening. I, you know, I do that through, you know, articles that are right that are able to, you know, I can I can get out with a much faster turnaround time. But I do think and I hope that, again, I mean, one of the things that I want the book to do is to give folks a little bit more of a grounding of how to think about the conspiracy theories that they are, they're seeing around them in a way that's useful. I mean, you know, one of the things that I talked about in the book, and I do think this is kind of, um, this tracks, I think, to to where we are in 2020, is, is um, when there is evidence in 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 the United States of, of police brutality, you have, you have people out on the streets, you have people marching, you have people protesting, you have a, a vocal and, and present uh, resistance, you know, demanding that the government stop killing its citizens, right? When you talk to 9-11 truthers, that is people who believe that September 11 was an inside job, you don't get that same immediate passion, even though if you believe that 9-11 was an inside job, you are also saying that, you know, the government killed its own citizens. And, and, and you know, that's kind of what you mentioned this earlier, you know, it's, there's a sense of which this stuff is kind of, for conspiracy theories, it's almost a little, it's a little bit sublime. It's this idea that, like, uh, something terrible is happening, but it doesn't actually impact me, right? You know, and that's, that's kind of the difference between a kind of 9-11 conspiracy theory and, uh, you know, police brutality, where, you know, Things that things that are actually scary and terrifying tend to draw immediate protests and demands for relief, you know, as they should. Things that sort of exist in the realm of conspiracy theories, it's it's like people sort of embrace them precisely because they they are kind of weird and removed. And and so, you know, the year that we have seen where you have lots of weird government conspiracy theories flying around, and at the same time, you have lots of legitimate protests around police violence. I mean, I think that, that, you know, those two uh, different trajectories are, 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 are a longstanding sort of evolution in American culture. And, and hopefully the, the book, even in a very roundabout way, roundabout way by just talking about aliens, you know, still manages to speak to that a little bit. Well, it does. Yeah. It's a really interesting sociological document, I think. I mean, it's fun because you can read like kooky stories, but it has a lot to say about modern life and, you know, one of my bugbears, the impact of social media and, you know, anti-truth and all, all of that stuff. So I think it's a really, it's a cool and interesting lens to look at some things that a lot of people are looking at, but but you kind of pack it with fun along the way. <laughs> but I've taken some quite, I've taken some fairly quite, you know, dark and serious topics there. So I want to go back and talk about you a little bit, because I'm, what I'm fascinated by, as as somebody myself who was, who was like really interested in this stuff, um, how do you get into it? Yeah, I mean, I guess well, I sort of fell into it. Um, you know, I 
it sort of happened. My my very first book, which came out in two thousand and nine, with a small press, I had quite by accident found a number of stories about uh, in the nineteenth century. Several famous people's uh, skulls had been stolen from their their graves. Uh, Thomas Brown, uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, Mozart, Beethoven, Franz Joseph Haydn, and it was this kind of weird moment where I was like, "What? What was this a thing?" and if it was a thing, why doesn't anybody talk about it? And so, you know, my, my first book was kind of a, a history of these stolen skulls. And, and, and trying to make sense of it, I, I kept coming back to phrenology, which, um, you know, is this idea that the, the bumps on your skull uh, are indicative of your personality. So it's total nonsense, pseudoscience garbage, right? But it drove, uh, you know, a handful of people to commit these rather bizarre acts of grave robbing you know, in, in Franz Joseph Haydn's case, it was a, um, a friend of his who waited uh, till five days after he was dead, uh, dug up his still decomposing corpse, decapitated it, um, cleaned the skull, and put it on a man on a, a glass uh, box on his mantle. Right. So, like, so it was one of those moments where I was like, you know, just because phrenology itself is a, a hokey, nonsense, garbage pseudoscience, doesn't mean it didn't change the world you know it doesn't mean it didn't impact the world and so so that kind of led me down this path of, of sort of asking these questions about you know just because something seems fringe or marginal or seems like it's it's not worth taking seriously that doesn't necessarily mean that it has nothing to tell us and i think that more and more has has guided sort of where i'm looking at things because i think that a lot of this stuff gets disregarded precisely because it seems ludicrous or it seems far-fetched or conspiratorial or whatever. And meanwhile, this is the same stuff that is sort of secretly driving a lot of our culture. So what led you to Ghostland? Because that's where I first found your work. And that, for, for the record, I think Ghostland is brilliant. Um, oh, it's, it's a really, oh, it's a great book. I recommend all the listeners to read it. It's, um, it's a great kind of archival history of of America, but told through the prism of haunted places. And I think that's just a phenomenal idea. What took you there, though? Because phrenology, you know, yeah, it's a mad, ridiculous pseudoscience, but it, you know, it's skulls, it's things that exist. It's, you know, there's a, there's an empiricism to it. What what took you to ghosts? Yeah, I mean, similarly, so I, I grew up in San Jose, California, and I was uh, always interested in the Winchester Mystery House, the, the, uh, it's a 161-room Victorian mansion in the middle of San Jose. It's this sort of weird, sprawling, bizarre building uh, that sort of seems like it's sort of set up like a labyrinth. And the, and the story has always, you know, when you go on the tour, the story they tell you is some variation of the fact that Sarah Winchester uh, lost her husband and, and infant child and sort of went into a kind of almost pathological grieving where she eventually contacted a spiritualist who told her that she was being haunted by uh, anyone, everyone who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle because her father-in-law had invented the Winchester rifle. And that the only way to keep them at bay would be to build a house that was never finished. And so she, you know, enlarged this eight-room farmhouse into this, this labyrinth supposedly designed to, to keep the spirits at bay. And I, I just always thought that was a cool story. And, you know, I, I, after I finished my my first book on the on the stolen skulls, I was sort of looking around for another topic, and I thought, well, this would this would make for a good biography. It's got a lot of things I like, so I I I went into it and I started sort of poking around, and 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 in short order, I found that the story that I just told you, um, you know, is in fact not not accurate. It's not you know it's not historically 
backed by anything that we have. And in fact, the few documents we have of her life suggest something totally different. And so, you know, my first thought was, you know, that's a bummer because I can't really can't really write a book that's just like, you know, the cool story you thought was true is actually fake and the real story is actually kind of boring. But I, I kept coming back to it. And, and finally, the kind of revelation I heard or, you know, I had was that like, you know, I wanted to know why that story, which I thought was so cool, why it it resonated the way it did. And that kind of led me down this path of like, what is it about certain buildings that that feel haunted and what is it about certain ghost stories that that stick in the mind and and get passed down from generation to generation and what what can we say about those those stories in those places and 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 you know kind of mine them for for what might else be there and so that's kind of how that's how that all started so in, in writing about these places i assume you visited them firsthand uh, yeah, for the most part, yeah. I think I, I pretty much went to almost every place that I ended up writing about in the book. Were there any that made you feel uncomfortable? Was there anything, any oddness that went on? Oh, yeah, definitely. And the, the one that really sticks out in my mind is the, the Moundsville um, Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia. And, it, and it, it was very hard for me to be in that space and not feel a real kind of emotional, like, oppressiveness on some level. And I think I think that is in part attributed to the fact, I mean, I, you know, I mean, some, for some people it's, it's, there's, there's a kind of supernatural element to that. I think that whether or not you, you sign up for that, it's also easy to say that the, the building was built to make people feel bad. You know, I mean, it, it was constructed to feel oppressive, to feel uh, claustrophobic, to feel um, sort of psychically off in some way, just, and, and so, being there, even just taking a tour of it, um, just felt, it just felt rough, you know, it felt, you know, it felt sort of claustrophobic and like, you know, as much as I was fascinated to be there, I also sort of couldn't wait to get out. Yeah. I, I imagine old dilapidated institutions like that, you know, they are psychologically scarring even if you don't believe in ghosts. You, you are kind of a, I would say a kind of benevolent skeptic. Has anything ever happened to you that's made you, you know, think, oh, what if? Or are there any cases in the books you've written that have made you kind of think, oh, you know, is there anything to any of this? Um, sure. I, I, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, again, I mean, I try to keep an open mind and particularly with the unidentified, there were, there were a number of stories that by the end of the book, I, I just, I didn't have a good answer for. I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to sort of conclusively say that you know well you know this is clearly a hoax or this is clearly just a you know mass hysteria or whatever like I, there were just a bunch of a, a bunch of moments that I, I singled out sort of near the end of the book where I just like you know I like you know folks I I don't have anything for you here and you know with the with the ghost stories I mean less so um but that's not because I'm I'm that much more of a skeptic it's just sort of like nothing i just haven't had one of those cool weird experiences but you know i i i'd been sent by a magazine to profile um the owner of the the mustang ranch the brothel in nevada outside of reno um so i was there on a you know magazine assignment magazine assignment they they eventually killed the piece but while i was there the the madam you know happened to mention that you know the 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 brothel was haunted. And so, you know, of course I wanted to hear more about that. And, and she told me about this. One of the women who worked there had this video. And so, you know, and lo and behold, the, the woman have to happened to walk by. So she said, you know, go get your camera or go get your phone and show them the video. And she showed me this video of 
it was her sort of, I guess when, when she, she's from Southern California and when she's working in Nevada, you know, she sends videos, uh, home to her husband. Um, you know, so this was a video that she was making for her husband and, and there's a, there's an orb in the, in the video, you know, it's, a, you know, one of these balls of light and mm-hmm. it's sort of hovering around her head. You know, obviously she can't see it. She doesn't, you know, it only shows up on the, on the video. It doesn't show up in, in, you know, in person. And then at some point the orb, you know, leaves the screen and, you know, she keeps, she keeps going. And then the orb kind of rockets back onto the screen. And right when it hits her temple, she falls over. <laughs> it was just like, it was such a weird weird thing and she didn't have an answer for it either either and i i just was like well i don't i have no idea what that was but that was that was something that was something that i don't have a good answer for so who knows you know yeah i mean i think it's good i don't want to know you know i, I like the mystery yeah exactly yeah because the, the thing the thing for me is that obviously any one case in isolation generally can be made to look quite ridiculous but as I've got older, I've just felt like more and more of these things have been taken away from me. Like, you know, the I used to watch the Gimlin Patterson film, which is, you know, the the, mo- that, that, the famous vi- video of, the, of the, the Bigfoot walking through the woods that everyone's seen, you know, and and now that's a fake and it feels like I think it's been taken away from me. You told me that the surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness Monster is a fake, which, you know, is kind of like a an excavation of my boyhood soul. Yeah. And the more it's taken away, the more that obviously I become... Uh, like a benevolent skeptic but it still seems to me that it's the, the aggregate mass of this stuff that is so compelling because surely it reaches a point where it, it is as as hard to believe that everyone is either lying or mistaken as it is to believe there is something in some of this stuff well okay so first thing i i, I want to say is that yeah i mean we we of the surgeon's photograph, which, you know, likewise was, you know, a kind of huge iconic image for me when I was a kid. Um, you know, we have a couple of people who basically not only confessed to the hoax, but explained the why and the how of the hoax. And that, that you know, that's, that seems pretty definitive. But even knowing all that, I still love that photo. That photo is still eerie and creepy. And there's just something about it that the gray of the the image and the graininess and just there's something so evocative and melancholic and, and eerie and unsettling about that photo that I, I don't care that it's fake. You know, it's still, it still works on me in much the same way. And I think that, I think that's true of a lot of this stuff. You know, I think this, I think that, that just, just because it's, it's not true doesn't mean it, it doesn't still have a kind of, you know, eerie power over us. And I think that's, that's really cool. So like, in terms of like the sort of aggregate weight of of um, you know all these all these believers then sort of portending it it it's it you know there must be something to it I, nah, that's harder for me to necessarily believe just because you know just just in the sense that just because a bunch of people believe something that's false you know does that then make it true it doesn't make it true to me it just makes it interesting to me you know it makes it interesting for me to then try and understand what's motivating this this belief and that kind of stuff so you know that's it's hard to say i still think it's i still think it's fun and worth talking about and and worth sort of kind of getting your hands kind of dirty in the weirdness of of human belief because i still think there's you know 
some good stuff in there. Well, yeah, and I've got to ask, like, what's next for you? I saw something on your Twitter about a book on secret societies. Yeah. So, and and again, I mean, when I first started this book, I did a, I, I did think that that it was going to be a kind of a wider sweep, and so I did a bunch of research about, you know, among other things, sort of secret societies and conspiracy theories surrounding them, and and so. So I'm I'm sort of happy that um, you know as it turned out that's that that looks like what's going to be up next and so you know I think that with with Ghostland my my question was really about sort of what is our relationship to the past and history and how does that sort of get expressed through ghost stories and with with the unidentified uh, my question was really like what is our relationship to the wilderness and how do we use you know stories of creatures uh, or UFOs to kind of get at our anxiety around, you know, the, the kind of the, 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 the near unknown, so to speak. And I think what this, hopefully what this next book will be is one that is really about our relationship to um, each other and the, and the ways in which secret societies are, are kind of um, the kind of uncanniness of, of the people in our midst and, and how we kind of process that kind of stuff. Cool. It sounds great. It sounds like it's going to be really kind of creepy reading its own right. Before you go, have you got time to answer my four, as I call them, rapid fire questions? I ask all of my guests these these four things. I'm making a collage of of rightly opinion. Is that okay by, by you? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind I want is think of it as kind of a authorial Rorschach test, if you know what I mean. What was your gateway to I won't say horror, but you know, the dark side of culture? Uh Stephen King. Any particular book? Have you got a favorite Stephen King book? I, I think my, my favorite Stephen King book is probably either Night Shift or The Stand, but I remember when I was young, my father had a copy of The Shining and it had this bright yellow cover. And the, the book itself, not the actual contents, but literally the physical book used to um, terrify me. And my brother used to use it. My older brother would, uh, if he didn't want me in his room, he would, uh, he would get that book off the shelf and put it in his doorway because he, he like you know, like it was some sort of kind of totem against vampires he knew i wouldn't cross that book <laughs> i had a similar thing with carrie by stephen king i had a paperback edition that had a picture of sissy spacex face with with blood pouring down it and the eyes used to pull me around my room terrified me yeah what book would you recommend to our listeners if you had one book to recommend oh geez if i had one book to recommend to your listeners i think i would recommend tony morrison's beloved um which is one of those great Great books that. Well, see now immediately I want to recommend too. So I, I'll let me let me uh, let me let me scratch Tony Morrison just because because uh, she's well known. I the book I would recommend the great American horror novel that never gets treated as a as a horror novel is uh, Leslie Marmon Silko's book Ceremony, which is about a World War II veteran who's who's Native American and um, comes back from the war, kind of beset by ghosts, literal and figurative, and and contains some of the most deeply unnerving uh passages in a in a novel that i've ever come across oh wow i'll look, i've never heard that myself i'll look it up that sounds great oh, yeah question three what advice would you give to a fledgling author i think to a fledgling author um the best advice that i ever got was to you know do the thing that you're passionate about to the best degree that you can possibly do and then trust that your audience will find you from there that's Beautifully affirmative. I like that. And my final question that I I love to ask: What truly scares you? I think I think. Well, I mean, I, well, 
we, we talk metaphysically or politically, but I think maybe for the interest of this this podcast, I would say, I think I will always be creeped out by very large uninhabited buildings at night. I don't know why it's it's such a standard thing, but it it really it really gets to me in ways that I don't think I can quite articulate. But well, as, as a man who's toured many of them, I think you you know you know better than most of us. So <laughs> I'll take that as a valid answer. <laughs> so. Colin, thanks very much for your time. As I've said, this is, you know, it's a great book for anyone who wants to know anything about the contemporary conspiratorial mind, which seems more and more pertinent as the days go by. And I just, I can't wait to see what you do next. If you want to come back on and speak to me about your Secret Society books, I'd be more than glad to have you. Oh, cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed talking. Yeah, thank you. Colin Dickey, thanks for talking scared. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Colin's a fascinating guy, and there's just so much more I wanted to ask him, but I felt like I should perhaps keep quiet and not reveal myself to the kind of raving loony that thinks there may still be dinosaurs knocking around in the heart of the Congo rainforest. It is a view I've espoused in the past. I recommend you have a read of both Ghostland and The Unidentified. Colin's got a really witty way of disparaging the nonsense while also taking a genuinely open-minded view towards some of the weirder stuff that remains. And both books are published by Viking. So it is Halloween. I hope you've all got your horrific movie of choice planned for the evening. My wife hates horror and just can't deal with any kind of jump scare. But once a year she indulges me and we watch something creepy together. We've gone tame in the past, you know, Psycho, The Shining, The Woman in Black which wasn't that tame, come to think of it. But tonight, I think I'll treat you to the Babadook. But I am tempted to put on Neil Marshall's The Descent and tell her it's a film that's just about caving. And uh, yeah, see what happens there. Speaking of frightening things, though, it's the US elections on Tuesday. By this point, I've insulted Trump enough that I'm going to assume most of my listeners also think the man's an incandescent tool. If not, thanks for still listening. Horror should be a broad church. But I'm hoping to get an election day special out to you a day early next week. It'll be an interview with Andrew Piper, all about his new novel, The Residence, which happens to feature a demonically infested White House. What else for 2020? But until then, have a very happy Halloween. You deserve it. Give good candy. Remember, the call is coming from inside the house. Vote. If you can, read good books. And remember, this time of year more than ever, it's good to be scared.